I've been a fascinated observer of uh, China and the uh, economic uh, revolution that they've gone through. I'm far from an expert, but I am uh, pretty fascinated by the changes and where we are and where we're going. Joe Biden has called this a clash of values of democracy versus autocracy. Um, and his goal is to stay ahead of China in a couple areas, semis, AI, and advanced technology. And he wants to do that through coordinated efforts um, to outspend China by partnering with uh, other developed nations, particularly in Europe. Um, that's easier to say than do right now, given uh, there's been some, there was a, quite a bit of damage done by the Trump administration in terms of our allies. So it's going to be interesting to see um, how quickly uh, he can get Europe to come back our way, um, while China is actually working very hard to uh, bring them along. Um, so it's a fascinating setup. I want to cover three topics quickly. I'd like to just start with um, the party, because I'm not sure everyone fully appreciates the, where it is. Talk about China by the numbers and some of the challenges and opportunities. Um, President Xi has really transformed the uh, political agenda in China, but it's helpful when you think about a country with 1.4 billion people. The party has roughly 89 million members. Um, the party Congress is a little over 2,200 members. And then you get down to the Central Committee, which has 376 members who are elected every five years. And this is one of the key groups. This is where it starts to get really interesting in terms of policymaking. And then it really gets to the 25 members of the Politburo who are really where the real core decisions are made. And then finally, you get to um, the Standing Committee and then President Xi. When you think about this, though, what does it take to get into that? Uh, into these numbers, even into the, uh, you know, the party Congress, you have to be really talented. It's not just what your family members are, which is what the perception of a lot of Westerners are, but mayors of, of cities are, are managing cities of 60 million people. And it's a very different mindset when you think of the scale and the complexity that goes on with, with this kind of a economy. And it really requires, in a sense, some of the command and control elements that China brings to bear um, really seems like it's one of the key ways that you can effectively create the type of economic growth that they've had. So let's look at the uh, the growth by numbers. And this chart just compares GDP uh, growth to the U.S. growth. China last year um, was down about uh, was up 2.3 percent. The U.S. was down about 3.6 in GDP, and the world was down around 4.3 percent. So China got it, was into it early, got out of it early, and really did a good job of closing down their economy for a short period in January and February to allow the reopening um, and to get them back on track. So last year was kind of a blip for them. Uh, that's not big growth for them. I think it's the lowest growth they've had uh, in a couple decades. But it's actually uh, what you can see here is the the course that they're on where China uh, by 2028 now is viewed to cross where the U.S. is uh, in terms of GDP. And it could get there. Uh, that's advancing predictions, which used to be 2035, then came down to 2033. And now we're kind of moving uh, even even faster in terms of when they when that might be. So. In 2009, China was about 35% of U.S. GDP. Uh, by uh, 2020, they're 78. 
71 uh, percent. And by 2028, um, it'll be China's uh, about 102 percent. And by 2035, it could be at China at 136 percent. Now, these projections are interesting and all that, but again, between here and there, there are some challenges that we'll come to in a little bit. But on a per capita growth basis, China's actually cleared a big hurdle last year going over the 10,000 mark. Um, this is comparing China to the rest of the world. China is in the uh, green. Uh, the rest of the world is in the uh, gold uh, bar. But you can see the trajectory that China's uh, going through, which is positive in terms of uh, what they're doing in terms of income and, and what they're doing in terms of spending power. Um, there are some negatives to this, which we'll touch on as well. And then you can see the China inflation versus the rest of the world inflation. And they're at a, you know, a, a pretty reasonable percent. I think that's around 6%, 5.5%, 6% inflation levels. Um, manageable. And when you think about it, where they are, it's, it's certainly not a, uh, a high level compared to where they've been over the last uh, 40 years. So what are the challenges and what are the opportunities and, and uh, what do we see going on? I think one of the first ones, and it's an interesting one, is uh, the demographic dynamics. The effects of the one-child policy are coming back to uh, bite, uh, bite them right now, and it's, it is a, a problem which we'll touch on in a minute. Um, the estimate for births were the lowest since 1961. What's interesting about that is they had uh, mass starvation in 1961. So when you have this low a birth rate with an economy doing as well as they are, I think part of the one-child policy is is the issue. But the other issue is that um, people are caring for their elderly because you have a rapidly aging society. So a couple or a, a single uh, person in their 20s, 30s, and 40s could be taking care of two to four parents, and that's actually uh, creating some challenges for the system. There is also, with this, potential productivity declines because you have a shrink shrinking workforce uh, over time with higher wages, as we talked about, the income going up, wages are, are part of that income, and they're going up against lower-wage competitors in their region, um, as well as uh, improved productivity from U.S. manufacturers, so their competitive advantage is going away for a couple reasons. Um, and then there are geopolitical issues, the South China Sea disputes, the U.S.-China trade tensions still exist. I could add the tensions with Australia. And then you had the border clashes between uh, India and China starting last summer, which seemed to be tempering down. But um, what you had is a, a period where um, – a uh, border area was uh, experiencing deadly clashes, and then seemingly unrelated, four months later, uh, 1,500 miles away in M Mumbai, they lost power uh, for 20 million people. Hospitals had to go on uh, backup generators and the like, and a new study connects the dots and thinks it was uh, uh, cyber warfare continuing from the Chinese. So uh, a lot of tensions, a lot of issues continuing to go on. Uh, so that is uh, kind of on the challenges side. Um, we talked about the population growth by numbers, and this is a, a fascinating look at uh, how far they've come since 1980. When you think about a 40% growth on a population of 1 billion people, uh, the numbers are staggering. And this is leading to a bigger middle class, which is not part of their challenge. But this flattening off and the demographic shifts that are going on with a rapidly aging population will create some strains on the on the system, in my view. 
There are plenty of opportunities, though. Their technology capabilities are among the finest in the world. Uh, they control, I think it's 80 to 85 percent of the world's rare earth production and refining. Their patent filings, they're now leading in, uh, in nine of the ten uh, leading areas for filing of patents, uh, and that's been a big shift. If you go back to 2000, it was the U.S. and Japan, and then it was the U.S., Japan, and Korea with China starting to come in, and then it really has become all about China with patent filing. So they're spending massively, and part of the reason Biden needs to get um, commitment from the allies to uh, go against uh, and defend against some of the aggressions in China or their technology capabilities is because China's spending uh, commitment is equal to the U.S. right now, likely to exceed it in the tech area, and that's going to create uh, uh, bigger strains on uh, non-Chinese competitors. So uh, there's going to be a need to get together to get the spending that high. As you're seeing there, uh, uh, per capita incomes go up, the middle class is growing, and having a massive middle class and growing is pretty phenomenal. Just to give you a sense, for the Chinese Lunar New Year, you would typically have 300 million people travel, which is slightly less than the population of the United States. So you can just see the size of a middle class that they're developing here with more people coming into it as a big opportunity. Uh, it reduces their reliance on, on the need to be an export-driven economy, and consumption-driven economies allow self-reliance better, and that allows you to really control your, your destiny a, a lot better and less reliance. Um, the military and space commitment is quite high. Their hypersonic missiles, that should be hypersonic, not supersonic, um, is an area that they're very focused on, as well as they're advancing the space program. And as we've seen with their uh, uh, South China Sea, in other areas, their naval capabilities continue to develop and be among the world's leaders, uh, and that is a big element for defending what they view as their uh, natural rights. Post-COVID recovery, uh, they were the first to recover. They've spent less. They only spent about 18% on fiscal and monetary stimulus compared to Ch uh, Japan at 74% and uh, the U.S. at 55% now of GDP. So, their commitments are less, but they do have some challenges that um, that exist. And in fact, one of their leading uh, uh, financial oversight guys came out today and was worried about uh, the spillover from the U.S. economy coming into uh, from the foreign economies and markets coming into China and having a negative effect there. But they're also worried about their real estate debt and other debts. So. Um, China has great opportunities. They are, uh, their model allows them to do things that other nations can't. This week, they're going to announce their five-year, their updated five-year plan. I find them fascinating that uh, having the planning that they do, and uh, not with this group, but with the previous uh, uh, standing committee, uh, when you read their bios, they are scientists, they're engineers, they're economists. Um, they're not poli-sci majors. Not there's anything wrong with that, but they're looking at this with a very different, more analytical approach to how do they drive the specific needs that they have for China's best interests. Um, they've done a phenomenal job at it, managing a massive uh, growth rate, a massive economy, not without missteps. It'll be interesting to see in a couple of years what happens with the Belt and Road um, uh, program that they have. Do they create more allies? Do they create more enemies from that? Um, the reviews have been mixed so far, but I think they're actually uh, 
you know, when they become the leading debtor to or a leading lender to so many of these nations on projects that may not pay off, they take over the projects and their ports and other strategically vital areas. And last year you saw Pakistan kind of push back against that. So it's going to be interesting to see. But, you know, China's future, like many other nations, is the best parts ahead of them. And uh, but they have challenges that they're going to have to go through. But uh, it really requires a, a lot of uh, thought as to how uh, we're going to, as a country, compete with them effectively and how the rest of the world will compete effectively with them. So with that, Mark, I'll stop. Thanks, Stephen. Thoughts, questions to Stephen? Sorry, I, I was a little bit late coming on. I apologize. Uh, did you speak about the Silk uh, Road project and the foreign foreign investment um, objectives, especially in Africa? Sorry. I touched on it just briefly at the end, and I think it's a phenomenal initiative, um, and it creates a, I think, a new al alignment of political interest as well as economic interest. Um, what I was questioning is um, – is the good deeds turn into bad feelings that we're starting to see? We saw it last year with Pakistan. Oh. Um, the idea that uh, when you borrow uh, and can't pay back, uh, you know, the projects become theirs. Uh, and there are strategically vital interests, um, particularly as it gets into the Indian Ocean, the South China Sea and, and their naval aspirations. Uh, that creates some uh, tensions that are going to be interesting to see how they play out. Some nations won't be able to push back, um, but other nations will will find that uh, hopefully they find out sooner rather than later if they're on the right side of the trade or not. But it is going to be an interesting uh, economic experiment as well as a political one. Stephen, uh, John Pagley here. Quick question, uh, not to be unduly cynical, perhaps characteristically so, though. Is this uh, a veiled loan-to-own program? Go in with a loan to get in there, and then, you know, knowing that there are going to be vulnerabilities, effectively take over, uh, do take over, and colonize, if you will, come to some other kind of agreement to bring people, groups, areas into their, their nexus, align them more closely. It's not a new playbook <laughs> when, when it's been used in the past. So I do yeah. think there that is the concern, whether that actually comes to bear. Um, I think a lot of that depends on um, the needs of those nations. Um, but remember, a lot of the African nations have a lot of resources that are needed by China. So there are symbiotic relationships there that are very important. So I, I think it's easy to be cynical about it because of, you know, the past colonization. Um, but I do think there are elements that are positive and negative in this, and some nations will fare a lot better than others. Uh -huh. But anytime you're a borrower on the wrong end of a of a borrowing, um, you can lose vital assets. And uh, that is one of the big concerns. What could be the U.S. strategic response to this? Um, that's kind of a dangerous question. It's like, Depends on who's in office and what's at stake. But any thoughts on that? I think we I think we have to start building relationships with Europe back to where they need to be before we can try and build relationships in areas that we really haven't had great relationships in. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I think we can use European relationships to get into uh, the African area better than we could on our own right now. Uh, but I think we're, we need to fix our own relationships between the U.S. and Europe first and come up with a coordinated uh, approach to how we're going to face off. Uh-huh. Look, look there's a, there was a vacuum. China stepped in yep. in its own national interest. I, I think the experience right. of what's been going on in Africa, Liberia, Sierra Leone, Zimbabwe, uh, the mining industry, um, like Liberia and Sierra Leone, they bought the mines, which were during the Ebola crisis, just not working, and they've just kept them there for the iron ore. When the building industry in China stopped, the world caught a cold, especially in Africa, uh, and and hopefully with the new UN ambassador coming to the UN, the US has recognized and and seen the Silk Road project as a big threat to US interests on the ground. What the the real situation on the ground is that the Chinese come in and say, we'll build you the schools, the universities, the roads. We don't want good governance. We don't want to be like the Europeans asking for democratic principles. And everything. We'll give it to you. You get a holiday in China. You get a holiday in Macau. And all these, you know, plus, plus. So the Chinese are already drowning out. Plus, remember the workforce that they bring in to build the schools and universities. I mean, I remember the first time I went to Liberia uh, after a long time, I was sitting next to a row of Chinese people who didn't speak a word of English. I did some translation. I, I've lived in China for a bit. And it, was, it just dawned on me that, you know, and now they have Chinese radio teaching Africans Chinese. So... You know, we're late to the game. The Europeans are a little bit late to the game. The Silk Road project is the one to watch and and see them. Because the mineral resources are already being bought up a long time ago. It's a long time ago. Iron ore, everything. So anyway, so I'll keep quiet, Stephen. Thank oh, you. No, okay. DJ, I've got a question just briefly from being in the mining industry and, and working on a couple of projects there. Where do you see the future of the mining business in whose hands? It's, I mean, if you look at gold right now, yes. a lot of the pro- we've done projects in gold and silver down there, and, yeah. and it, it's now dang- it's fairly dangerous, right? Because you don't know how well protected they are. Well, this is like one of the groups I'm working with that uh, I've spoken to Mark about is called Maris Capital, that some of you people already know. I know Maris. I know them. Yeah, so, you know, Charlie Duran has been an interesting character. You know, he worked in uh, Afghanistan. He's got security forces around him. They have a few mines that they've been trying to offload. They have a few mines that they've been trying to buy. Gold, you know, is a wild, wild west. The iron ore industry is literally completely owned by the Chinese now. Um, if you go in, I'm working on a few deals for West Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, cultural mining and everything and the, the one problem we have is the the government and the lack of stability of the government yes you know and, and you need to have the donors you, wake up, you could wake up and lose and lose all your assets we're going to do an Africa deep dive I think we'll hit this in, sorry in, okay thank you, but you do need, and but this, I saw this though play out in, in Latin America there was a seven billion and a seventeen billion transportation project in Colombia. Chinese Chinese went in just so fast. Won yeah. the won it, and we had to play the NATO card just to put the kibosh on it. 
That's right. In, in closing, we, we were successful in Mongolia with Robert Friedland's group. So, and I'm sure VJ knows that group. Well, you guys know who's uh, offered to give Latin America uh, the vaccine? <laughs> China and Russia. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. the number of Russians that won't take the vaccine that I saw today yeah. was something like 76%. Well, I, I heard today on CNBC that uh, China is supplying uh, Iraq with the vaccine. The Iraqi Air Force picked up the vaccines and uh, delivering them. So I'd say Iraq owes something to uh, China. Listen, China is going to be is formidable. They are they have a very different approach, and that approach is uh, the opposite of most of the U.S. and Europe. And that has appealed to a lot of people who are not thrilled with the U.S. and Europe, uh, particularly in a lot of these nations. Um, but it's not just in in the uh, Africa area. If you go to the Caribbean islands, you'll see they're building stadiums, uh, soccer stadiums, schools, uh, getting into the oil refining areas down there as well. Um, so they're making a big push into the Caribbean as well as South America. Um, and so it's not a isolated, uh, uh, initiative. They're going global and their aspirations are to be the alternative. Not, not just the Caribbean. They're next door to us in the Bahamas. Yep. To, a, to what, alarming what, degree. What's the problem with this? What's like I don't like China sounds like it's helping increase the economy. It's helping to make poor nations wealthier. It's creating jobs for people. I'm I'm just being the devil's advocate here, but like what's the problem? Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, I, I don't understand. We don't need them in the Bahamas. We're right there. I mean, it's just it's just a crazy geopolitical risk to have them playing the role they are next door to us. I mean, I'm not saying China's going to behave like the Russians, but it's just it just makes no sense. Yeah, I don't know that it's bad or good yet. Um, that'll be TBD. Um, but it is concerning. Uh, it's concerning if I was uh, one of the people taking the loans in the in the Belt and Road thing, I'd be concerned about what I lose control of. Uh, what Let's I go back to the three things you're talking about, Stephen. The three areas. Where, you, where were they again? Because I'm also thinking of Kissinger's uh, speech on China. Um, AI. Oh, it was AI uh, semis and other advanced technologies, which gets into space. It gets into oh. uh, you know Isn't all the that, military stuff. I mean, I get it. The backyard. They don't want us in their backyard, vice versa. But. Those, those are the three playing fields for this war. Yes, cyber as well. Right? Yep. Cyber. So that's, you know, that's, that's where I think, you know, we're going to have a cybersecurity event coming up. That's going to come up there. Yeah. And this puts you into the discussion about 5G, Huawei, surveillance, and, and all the other things that uh, we've mentioned in, in passing a lot of time. Yep. If China, I'm going to go back to another thing. If China is doing this and China is making a lot of money, why isn't somebody else doing it to make a lot of money? We don't know that they're making a lot of money. Right. If you're lending to projects that don't make money, um, then you're hoping that the asset you can monetize enough or it creates enough strategic value to you to offset the debt losses. 
Um, I think one of the issues with China is the uncertainty about what their actual debt levels are and what the debt burdens are and what does that mean, both on a, a local level, uh, local government level is where they're actually identifying the problem now, but other areas where you don't know. Um, the other thing is it's China's fascinating because it is uh, you can look at it whichever way you want to look at it, positive or negative. But when you looked at the uh, economic uh, revolution that they had and say, well, it was state owned enterprises that did it. But then you look at their tech area and you see, you know, uh, Baidu and Tencent and, and the likes and you see what Jack Ma's done and you say, wait a second, they're building really world class companies as well. So you can't just look at it as all state-owned enterprises driving everything and they're getting all these benefits. There's really, uh, you know, some interesting well, economic experiences going on there. Uh, so, Stephen, um, I, I, the way you just described it, it came to mind what FDR did in the 1930s, right? And we're, in a lot of ways, still still um, benefiting from all that massive investment, you know, people digging a hole, another person filling in the hole, Kind of investment, and you know, previously in the last couple of weeks, you mentioned you know trillion dollars been throwing into the debt, and then today you mentioned the that massive middle class. So maybe they're spending their way into a huge economy, a huge positive economy with a long-term goal. That is, and so far they've been successful at it, but the history of that kind of growth is not consistent with a lot of people succeeding. They've actually, that's why the 10,000 per capita was a big hurdle to clear because it used to be that $6,000 per capita income was kind of the jump out of the developing area to be much more significant. Um, but um, now they're moving up, but there are problems with it, with their growth. Their, their wages are getting to be non-competitive. That's why we're able to bring manufacturing back and be successful with it through through that automation. And if they run into a problem where they don't go up the value chain in technology, which they're doing a pretty good job of, by the way, but if they don't make it, it's going to be very tough to keep the economic growth going and move from this 10000 to close the gap where the U.S. is at $65,000 per capita income. But they're already ahead of it. They're already investing in these companies in Vietnam and in Egypt. We're not. Right. Uh, the other thing, uh, I want to put this, put this in context. We had two days. The second day we of yes of last week's conference was in it was really set for the Asians. I want to take a minute, twenty seconds, listen to the takeaways from the last two days, and I want to talk about Asia, Europe, and the U.S. Particularly Europe, which is losing. Takeaways from recent share the screen. gathering investors on February 23, 24. Whoever's typing a lot, please don't type too much. Specific ideas. Technical overall growth stocks. Think airlines, cruise companies. Inflation versus deflation. We see both sides. Different ways to head, like long data put options on treasuries. Parts of the population are choosing to take the vaccine. Harder looks at managers. Ways to put SPACs. Energy is ripping in again. Brazilian onshore oil are putting up. Platinum is a play on internal combustion engine. Secondaries is a nice diversifier for duration. Day two, we switch to Asia and Europe, Middle East Africa, China, and wider Asia are rising stronger. Singapore is a magnet for investing outside of China, Indonesia, Vietnam, 
Hong Kong, still a window to the west. Cap markets, Europe. Has it lost its way? UK. Seems better short term with the vaccines, but long term mixed. Digital assets rising, picks and shovels working. Next BCI session is March 24th at 8 a.m. For the 10 a.m. impact conference, deep dives will hit some of these topics. Go to www.361firm.com slash events. So what one of the takeaways I, I had was the people in Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Indonesia, Korea, they're all innovating. The U.S., we, we bungled uh, how we, we handled COVID, but we're still innovating. Europe is bungling and not innovating. Was part of the consensus I heard from that. UK ahead uh, on the vaccine, but maybe not long term. What if, what do people think of those, those two as you allocate across? Does anyone have any strong opinions? Greg, I'm calling you. Look, um, there are, you know, as, as we said uh, a few months, a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, when, when Stephen had uh, discussed emerging markets a little bit, um, in terms of investing, it's about selecting the right companies, the right projects, right? It's, it's this, this whole thing about investing in, in a region or a country or an asset class emerging markets is, is wrong. And I, uh, I'm an EM investor, but, you know, that, 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 that train has left the station a long time ago. The, the, the level of development of what's happening in these places is completely different. In China, China in particular, I think I've mentioned in the past, they've been extremely deliberate uh, in terms of how they are inserting themselves in the global financial space, right? Um, SDR, MSCI index inclusion, and uh, bond inclusion is attracting passive capital uh, in, in a very, very big way. Uh, and that, that was deliberate. Right. That was not that was not an accident that, that this happened. And now what's happening with the repatriation of IPOs and the growing significance of the domestic exchanges uh, to just build their own capital markets, a very interesting phenomenon. Stephen, you did a great job of, of listing the positives in China. Um, the negatives is, is the Chinese characteristics around all this. So so while Tencent, Baba and, and Baidu uh, were are innovators. Um, and, and theoretically not SOEs, they, they've all been at certain points in time called to government service or, or to play for the national team. It's detracted a significant amount of value uh, from these companies from, from time to time until people figure out. Um, you know, in, in my, 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 you know, what keeps me out of trouble in China is understanding that there's a limit to how much money you can make in China before you call the attention of somebody, you know, one of those uh, – 89 million and then start scaling it up till you get to the, to, you know, the point where people cut you off in the, in the party or, or tell you basically, you know, this, you, you've gotten up to here and, and now this is what you need to do. Um, you know, I've seen how companies that have one objective were transformed into another one overnight because, you know, that's what they were told to do. And some of these fail, right? The BYD with, you know, was an automaker, then supposed to be a battery maker. And now nobody really, nobody really talks about it anymore. So it's not without perils. It's not without perils. Um, and in terms of what you were asking, you know, uh, regions, you know, U.S., Europe, uh, Asia is the most dynamic. There's no question about it right now. There is no question of the, the dynamism there. And uh, and China's behind it. And, and, and I think they don't want uh, anybody else to, to meddle. Uh, 
that's the project, it seems. Um, so it'll be very interesting how it plays out. Greg, you brought up a great point about the what they've done to Jack Ma lately and how they're viewing his wealth. And they not only have that issue, but they're going to do a uh, review of the military to see if there are people who aren't following the uh, cultural principles of the government, and uh, uh, which is a nice way of saying they're going to wipe out people who they don't think are in, in step. And uh, they'll do that, and that purge will be pretty aggressive. And if, if that's part of the foundation for how you're running your country, then there are, there's a fragility to that for the long term that uh, could come to bear. So um, I think there, it's, it's, a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating country because there are so many things you look at and say, it's, it's amazing what they've accomplished. And on the other hand, you can say, well, yeah, but if, you, if we had that kind of structure, we could do it too. That's actually, I think, flawed in that if, if a lot of these other nations could have followed this model, they didn't, and they haven't been able to, and anyone who's tried hasn't been able to do what China's done. So I think it's a, it's really full of conflicts and is going to be fascinating to watch over the next. They might not pass the U.S., which I would just want to say, to be clear, they might not outgrow the U.S. in those time frames. And the reason for it is I think the challenges of productivity and wage increases are going to be hard to keep raising wages and raising living standards while you're uh, growing, trying to grow at the rate they're trying to grow. So I, d I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that they beat out the U.S. anytime soon either. But, but, but I think it's, it's, there, there are several factors, right, that one is the sheer inertia <laughs> of the size of that economy uh, is going to cover a lot of sins, you know, just internal growth. It's the United States in the 1920s on steroids, Right. And, and the only other uh, country that had the ability to compete with it would be India from the amount from the sheer size. Um, and, and, you know, India's biggest problem has been its government uh, that hasn't been a, a, a capitalistic uh, uh, toned economy with the level of control that the government has overseeing it. And so I think it's it's in everybody's peril to assume that um, the speed bumps uh, 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 that, that we're discussing here is going to sidetrack. And I just think there's so much incredible um, uh, underlying uh, strength in their economy. And the United States, quite honestly, is facing its own host of, of challenges. Um, and being a manufacturing guy uh, for the last 10 years, mm -hmm. uh, you know, reshoring sounds really good. As a, as a press lead, but, you know, the reality is executing it is really hard and executing it in, in, in an environment, um, where government controls, uh, it really influence your ability to compete, um, is a, uh, uh, versus somebody like China that has a very, um, accommodative, uh, uh, uh government with respect to policies. Uh, and standard stuff, you know, healthcare, workers' comp, uh, you know, workers' rights still don't, really don't exist in China because they have the sheer amount of, of, of volume of people still transitioning from an agricultural or rural society into an industrial. You know, the United States has an opportunity to survive if it doesn't get in its own way, which I, I'm not confident it, it can. So I think, I think, you know, we shouldn't all, we shouldn't take um, any comfort that 
that you know, what I think is noise is going to derail the um, the Chinese train. Um, uh, one man's opinion. Hey, Greg or Steve, this is Rob Colorina. A quick question: Are you, do your comments go into Hong Kong? Because it seems like that's an area that kind of plays both sides even more. And then you know they're, they're getting some interesting traction on the listings on the listing side there. I'll turn what, that one over to Greg. Yeah, look, what I, what I found so fascinating about what's happened in Hong Kong in the last year is this, right? So if you're a market participant, a serious market participant, and we're looking at Hong Kong, the people's biggest sport was who was going to see the first tank rolling into Hong Kong and send the picture on, uh, on, uh, on, on one of the social media sites. The reality is the co-optation of political co-optation of, of Hong Kong took, took place. And it was smooth. It was relatively peaceful. There's a purge going on. There's people going to jail. There's these people being taken in custody every night for uh, dissenting political views. Yet, yet, the markets are what they are. They're still they're still rallying, and people still want to participate. Um, it's 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 so so I don't know. I, I the the answer is I don't know. I mean the creep. Is, you know, this was the, the thing with Hong Kong, the thing with the special economic zones where, you know, they were supposed to be special. They were supposed to be capitalistic experiments. Um, what it seems to be is that those those are, are being pulled back into the, you know, one country, one policy rather than um, uh, what they had with Hong Kong, which was a double standard. Um, and we'll see how that progresses and affect and eventually how that um, affects the business community. But my my prognostication is that it will be this, you know, having a business in Hong Kong will be the same as having a business in, in China in terms of uh, being able to be called into national service and uh, having overseers on your boards. And, and it's, it's, it's going in that direction right now. I don't know what's going to change it. Thank you. Greg, what's your view on the, the demographic potential time bomb that they have, um, particularly given their immigration, uh, lack of desire for immigrants? Yeah, look, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a problem, right? It's showing up in all the indicators that, that you were mentioning before. Um, you know, we're not, you know, it's, the, the one-child policy has not been in effect since 2015, I think. They went back to a two-child policy. Um, but it's, it's, it's astounding that the 2020 numbers are not bad, given that there was a two-child policy uh, in, uh, active. In that moment, um, but that's also it's it's interesting, right? Because why why so demographically countries countries with less safety nets are are the ones that tend to have uncontrolled demographics, right? Because you build your own safety net by increasing your your nucleic family, right? And there's very some very sad statistics around all that. Uh, as China is emerging more, you know, I think you. With the six to ten thousand, you're talking about the middle income trap. Uh, to be to go beyond that, um, you know what you get is uh, different demographics, right? And Europe is Europe is going that direction. The U.S. is certainly going in that direction, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, automation should 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 be a um, um, something that will help that in in a way. Um, and that will, in theory, be able to create higher-paying jobs where the more routine stuff. Um, you know, what's 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 very interesting is they've made an active decision to let their currency stay strong for a while. Mm -hmm. 
in the past, this was not something that, you know, something debated. Uh, it was more of a mercantilist uh, approach to exports. And, and now they're believing that the way to retain domestic capital and to attract foreign capitalists to keep a stronger keep a stronger currency. So, I mean, this is, it's all, it's all in progress. I, I don't know how the demographic uh, thing ends. We have Japan as an example, but. On, on demographics, I've got, it's sort of, it, immigration is part of the Biden agenda. Agenda. Sorry, my Ohio accent comes out sometimes. Um, agenda. Um, and I've got you on, Rob. So we want, I want to see, I'd like to see that come to the fore soon. The, those who are active in the uh, Biden administration and are around it. So I, I would think that would be an issue. Yes, BJ? I, I, I feel the bump. I hear you, Mark. We'll, we'll, we'll be following up. Good. Good, BJ. Sorry, sorry. Just very quickly. I get that bump to Stephen three times a week, so it's okay. Sorry, sorry. Just very quickly on the one-child policy. For those of you know, I was in China in 2000, 2002, and the most recently. The one-child policy in the provinces in Xi'an, Wai'an, didn't exist. You'd be walking around villages with loads of children all around you, and you'd be like, but hold it. And also, you know, you'd be surrounded by Christian churches. And so all those policies in Beijing, if you go to, if you went to Inner Mongolia, Xi'an, or even on the outskirts of uh, Shanghai, those policies didn't exist. You would see villages of children, and you'd be like, but where is this one-child policy? So I think, you know, you, you have to realize what, what was going on in Beijing and what happened outside was two different worlds. Sorry. I think, Greg, what's the social safety net there like for for the elderly right now? Is it's pretty non-existent, isn't yep. it? Pretty, pretty, pretty non-existent. There's been a small move to begin transferring resources because, yeah, the, the, the observers that I like to read a lot, people like Michael Pettis. I don't know if some people follow him or not, but he's a very keen observer of, of what's going on. You know, some people criticize his timing, but I think he's got the, the broad strokes right. There needs to be a very big wealth transfer in China, and that's that's really the that's really the the, the problem today. Who you know the the debt metrics that you were discussing, you know, who's going to end up paying for that? Uh, in the past, apparently. Right. In, in in the past, it was the consumer, right? It was households where household uh, percentage of GDP dropped uh, you know, to arguably maybe the high 20s uh, unseen anywhere else. Uh, and it hasn't it hasn't escaped too much from that. It's in the in the 30s now, I think. Um, so you need a very large uh, you need a very large uh, wealth transfer. Uh, and that's when uh, the special interests come in and, and the different factions. And, and I think that's the, the dynamic that's playing out in China today. Um, so that story is to be continued. I mean, there was a very big uh, uh, push in, in previous plans and talking about huku and, and uh, housing uh, permits and, and, uh, and the ability to live actually in the place where you were working rather than have to migrate back to your village once your your temporary tasks were done, but there hasn't been much of an advance on, on that yet. Uh, and so you get what Vijay was saying, which is this very big uh, difference between uh, the, the the modernized part of China and 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 the rural uh, parts of China. Fascinating. Well, I we will do it. We should do a China deep dive. Meanwhile, we have in two days uh, the India deep dive. So for those who are uh, who are interested, and I, 
I have a 10 year business visa that's now running out. Uh, probably been there 20, well, 12 times. Okay. Um, and some would say it's, it's changed a lot. Um, you know, with Modi. And, uh, so we'll have some interesting voices and perspectives. Uh, some of my Stonehaven colleagues will be bringing on some, uh, their perspectives beyond what Kiran, uh, is doing with this panel. Um, yeah, I'm, and I have a few other ex-Anderson people that will be joining. So it's a, it's, it's another force to be reckoned with. You know, maybe not as a, it's not a China per se. Um, but in, in demographics, to your demographics point, that's, there's no one child policy there. And, um, and to that point, you know, we've seen Vietnam and Indonesia, parts of Africa growing. So we want to shine some lights there. Does anybody have any experience or, or, or uh, questions on India? I would just say it's as fascinating an economic experiment right now as China was a couple of years ago. And how it plays out will be, you know, one of the big determinants for the global economy going forward. It's just that it's that big when you have that many people with as educated a system as they have. Um, if they can get some of the stuff that they've been struggling with right, it's it's got to can unleash a lot. But VJ, just a quick word on, on India, Mark. Um, we 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 bought a business from the Burla family there um, in Europe, and that was a, that was a win-win. But more recently, it's interesting how a group like um, the Reliance Reliance Industries and like um, VJ, you may have some comment on this. Would convert from being an industrial, um, you know, chemicals and very successful to basically switching um, uh, or adding the uh, getting into 5G and then bringing in you know, the likes of Facebook and Google yep. and, and Silver Lake Capital, putting billions of dollars towards 5G. Um, so they've kind of, you know, for them to, to add to the mandate. And seeing that this is, uh, you know, many said, "Hey, you're too late to get in the game there," but I think it's 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 paying off. But um, that'll be just something interesting that some others from the panel or some others on this call may comment on. But it's 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 pretty fascinating how an old dog can kind of learn new tricks and 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 um, and do well with that. I think the biggest question India has right now is what to do with this agricultural policy, uh, the farmers. And the disparity between the educated, uneducated, and the villages. The same problem China is having. What goes on in Mumbai, Delhi, and um, the IT capitals is vastly different from what goes on in, in the lower states like Bihar, which is a, a problem for Modi, not only on a religious front. There's a lot of things brewing, but plus the Pakistan, China. So it's an interesting place to be. And, you know, uh, I've got friends at Blackwater who set up there and are doing very well. So it's, it's the wild, wild west on another level. Mark, over to you. Sorry. It's got an emerging capital markets that is going to be fascinating to see how that evolves, too, because they could really ramp up their capital market system to be much more meaningful, both from an equity and fixed income perspective. Yeah, well, they do have the cost advantage uh, still. 
And I yeah. think that the, the interesting contrast to, to discuss maybe is the, is the system, right? Because this is it's billed as the largest democracy in the world, right? So they, they do vote, um, and, and, and people do have, you know, there, there'll be criticisms to that. But um, it's a completely different model than, than, than China. So it'll be very interesting to, to discuss the um, discuss the differences there. Book 361, Mark, one of the key areas that you have is you have a network of people who can build the bridge between, there's a lot of the, a lot of the people who've gone back to India. Remember the back to the B2B was back to India to go do businesses. You have an alumni of people who are already sitting in India looking for new ideas or have new ideas or looking for venture capital, looking for partnerships and that bridge. So 361 is an ideal bridge builder also within the Eastern Front because of your Russian connections. The, the relationship between India and Russia is phenomenal. Uh, and it's one that people underestimate so often. Anyway, uh, over to you, Mark. Sorry. So the, so somebody who's, who's Shiv Kim, Kimka, I don't know if anybody knows Shiv. He's going to be on, he's joining. He made his money in Russia. A lot of the Indians move, you know, move quickly. The Indians and the Irish <laughs> move quickly into Russia. But, uh, or maybe the Irish just made themselves feel strong because they, they had all the bars. But, uh, no, I think you're right. It's, it, you know, I, I just remember, you know, I thought Russia was corrupt and then I went to India, but I was, I was reminded, uh, you know, how corrupt, you know, you know, like pick my, pick a county and, and the, the it's, it's everywhere, right? So it's, it's it just emerging markets in particular. But I think Modi, what Modi has done is, as Stephen said, it's a big experiment. It's forcing a lot of transparency and, uh, he pushed it hard and let's, I think it's already, you know, having some, some positive implications. And to Greg's point, uh, we should be rooting for it. And the use of technology and what Modi was doing was really fascinating too, with the biometrics and and the like to help go against the corruption. Yeah, and there's a huge diaspora over here um, that helps you know back to your bridge point, BJ. Uh, I'm I'm partnered, many know, with Anand uh, Shahi in the Canvas world, but um, and you know he. Everybody's got this uncle or aunt like he has that, that are really well placed and, and so I think they'll, that, that's helpful for the, for them as well. Obviously China's done the same, Russia in some ways, but particularly India. So, and what, and what else? I mean, we can, sounds like China's an issue. We could do a China deep dive or someone suggested a pan-Asian deep dive. Get some experts instead of observers for that one. Greg and Greg and other experts. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't even know your subject until like uh, I don't know how many hours ago. Uh, Nine oh one. Tuesday morning email. Yeah. So, but yeah, we. I think it's a good subject. We should. I could have. We should have brought. There's a there's a guy named Winston Ma who's been on the travel circuit. Went to Michigan. And, and to Greg's earlier point that, you know, China and, this, and sovereign wealth funds have really been really blowing up the whole venture unicorn market, too. And the big firms in the States are rushing over there to do more. You know, BlackRock and all those guys are moving faster as fast as they can to get as much, you know, 
share of market as they can early. So that's saying something too. Yeah. 